Picture this, if you will. A 50-year-old woman on chemotherapy for metastatic melanoma presents to the emergency department for one week of confusion. She says she can't keep track of the dates and sometimes forgets names of people she's known for years. After examining her and ordering routine blood tests, you find that her serum sodium and osmolarity are severely reduced, and a CT of the brain reveals a metastatic lesion she was previously unaware of. Putting the pieces together, you suspect the lesion is causing dysregulation of vasopressin, and that the change in osmolarity may be causing the patient's symptoms. How will you explain the cause of the confusion to the patient, and what solutions might you propose? And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from endocrinology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. List the two main functions of vasopressin and describe its synthesis and site of storage. 2. Identify the cellular binding and major mechanisms of action of vasopressin. 3. Describe the regulation of vasopressin release. Part 1. What is vasopressin? Today, we're going to talk about the hormone with two faces, vasopressin, also known as antidiuretic hormone, or ADH. It's a neuropeptide hormone of the posterior pituitary that's critical in, in maintaining blood pressure and serum osmolarity. It's given the name vasopressin because it increases blood pressure by constricting blood vessels, and the name antidiuretic hormone because it increases free water reabsorption by the kidney, diluting the serum and increasing the intravascular volume. And you might be wondering why one hormone has two seemingly unrelated effects. The answer is to solve the biologically very common problem of dehydration. Humans drink what is essentially free water, not normal saline, which means that we're used to requiring a constant input of extremely hypotonic fluid to maintain homeostasis of the serum. If that constant input of water stops, our blood volume would decrease as we continue to lose fluid through urination, respiration, sweating, etc. And with insufficient blood volume circulating through our veins, we'd become hypotensive pretty quickly. Not only that, but without the constant dilution of our serum with water that we drink, our blood would become progressively more hypertonic, a surprisingly dangerous phenomenon for the central nervous system. Vasopressin solves both problems, with effects on both the kidneys and the vasculature. Vasopressin is synthesized by neuron cell bodies in the paraventricular and supraoptic nuclei of the hypothalamus. It then travels down the connecting magnocellular, or M-cell neurons, through the infundibulum to the posterior pituitary where it's stored until it's released into the blood. Its structure is pretty similar to the other posterior pituitary hormone, oxytocin, but the two hormones have pretty distinct functions. But, fun fact, there is some cross-reactivity. Like, for example, vasopressin can stimulate uterine contractions. Quick check-in before we move on. Where is vasopressin synthesized? Vasopressin is synthesized in the paraventricular and supraoptic nuclei of the hypothalamus. Part 2. How does vasopressin act on tissues? Like we mentioned, vasopressin's principal functions are vasoconstriction of the arterial smooth muscle cells and increasing free water reabsorption in the kidney. And while both of these are important in maintaining blood pressure, intravascular volume, and organ perfusion, the renal effects give vasopressin its most unique function, the ability to regulate serum osmolarity by diluting the serum with free water. After synthesis in the hypothalamus as a water-soluble peptide, vasopressin travels unbound in the circulation. It binds to target tissues using the various vasopressin receptors. These are G-protein-coupled receptors with high concentrations in vascular smooth muscle, the renal collecting ducts, platelets, and the anterior pituitary gland. After receptor binding, 
A MAP kinase signaling cascade leads to physiologic changes within the cell and altered gene expression. To induce vasoconstriction, vasopressin binds to the V1A receptors on vascular smooth muscle cells. This stimulates smooth muscle contraction, increasing the resistance in the arteriole and raising the blood pressure. For this reason, vasopressin is pharmacologically important in the treatment of shock as the only vasopressor infusion that doesn't work via the adrenergic receptors. Now that's the easy part. The effects on the kidneys get a little bit more complicated. Here, vasopressin puts on its antidiuretic hormone hat, so I'm going to start calling it ADH. To give a very brief overview, serum is filtered from the blood through the glomerulus into the renal tubule, with roughly unchanged concentrations of water and ions. Much of it is reabsorbed in the proximal nephron, and while concentrations of specific ions change, the overall osmolarity of the filtered fluid does not. It's in the distal nephron, specifically the principal cells of the collecting duct, where water reabsorption is regulated so that we can adjust our blood's concentration, or osmolarity. And ADH is crucial to this regulation. ADH binds to V2 receptors in the collecting duct principal cells. The resulting G-protein cascade causes phosphorylation of channels called aquaporins, leading to their insertion on the luminal membrane of the kidney tubule. The aquaporins allow facilitated diffusion of water through the cell. The greater the stimulation by ADH, the greater the number of aquaporins inserted, meaning increased reabsorption of water. So water then moves out of the cell into the renal interstitium, the renal tissue that surrounds the tubules. And the driving force for this is the fact that the renal interstitium is really, really salty, with increasing concentrations of sodium, chloride, and urea the deeper you get into the renal medulla. As long as ADH allows water to pass through the cells of the collecting tubule, the extremely concentrated renal interstitium serves as the osmotic driving force that pulls water through to the interstitium, where it's eventually reabsorbed by the blood. And while the countercurrent multiplication in the loop of Henle is the main reason for the increasing osmolarity deep in the renal interstitium, ADH also helps maintain this concentration gradient. Stimulation of the principal cells also increases urea reabsorption from the tubule into the interstitium, further increasing the concentration. So, just to recap, what effect does ADH have on the osmolarity of the serum and urine? ADH facilitates reabsorption of water from the urine, causing the urine osmolarity to increase and the serum osmolarity to decrease. Similarly, when ADH levels are low, then aquaporins do not insert into the membrane, decreasing the permeability of the collecting tubule to water. And even if the concentration gradient favors the flow of water into the interstitium, if the collecting tubule is impermeable to water, then it remains in the collecting duct and is excreted into the urine. This makes the urine very dilute and leaves the serum more concentrated. This is what occurs when you drink large amounts of fluid. ADH is suppressed, your urine volume increases, and the urine becomes very dilute. Just remember that antidiuretic hormone works to reduce urine flow by reabsorbing water. Antidiuresis means less water loss. It's a double negative, I know, but still, it's all in the name. Pop quiz time, my friends. What are the effects of ADH on the principal cells of the nephron? Binding of ADH to V2 receptors causes aquaporin insertion into the principal cell membranes and increased reabsorption of urea into the renal interstitium. The combination of effects allows free water to be reabsorbed from the urine and returned to the serum. So we covered the two main functions of vasopressin, its effects on the vasculature and on the kidneys, but there are a couple of lesser-known effects of vasopressin that are still physiologically important. 
Vasopressin can stimulate ACTH release by binding to the V1B receptors on the anterior pituitary gland, stimulating cortisol synthesis by the adrenal gland. Since cortisol facilitates vasoconstriction by the sympathetic nervous system, this is yet another way in which vasopressin helps maintain the blood pressure. Remind me of the other two ways it helps maintain blood pressure? By directly causing vasoconstriction via the V1A receptors, and by increasing blood volume through fluid retention. Finally, vasopressin binds to platelets using the V1A receptors. Here, it acts to stimulate platelet aggregation and blood clotting by stimulating the release of von Willebrand factor from the vascular endothelial cells. And this effect is actually used pharmacologically to stop abnormal bleeding in patients with chronic kidney disease who sometimes do have platelet dysfunction. Part 3. What mechanisms regulate vasopressin release? Unlike the hormones of the anterior pituitary, there's no hypothalamic pituitary axis you need to remember for vasopressin. Instead, there are a variety of factors that can either stimulate or inhibit the release of vasopressin from its storage site in the posterior pituitary. Three main stimuli normally cause posterior pituitary vasopressin release. First, increased seromosmolarity, sensed by osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus. Second, decreased effective circulating volume, primarily sensed by a variety of stretch receptors and baroreceptors in the heart and large arteries, then integrated in the hypothalamus. And third, increased serum angiotensin II levels, also increased in states of low blood pressure and low blood flow to the kidneys. It may sound like a different means to the same end, but recall that the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is activated by either low blood pressure or low blood volume. Angiotensin II and aldosterone trigger the kidney to retain sodium, but since angiotensin II also stimulates vasopressin secretion, it has the ability to simultaneously increase blood pressure and volume by a completely different pathway. The main inhibitors of vasopressin, on the other hand, are the hormones cortisol and atrial natriuretic peptide, both of which typically indicate elevated blood pressure when their own levels are elevated. Cortisol inhibits ADH release from the pituitary, and ANP inhibits the effect of ADH on the renal collecting duct. Final quiz, my friends. What are the three stimuli that cause vasopressin secretion? An increase in seromosmolarity, a decrease in blood volume, and an increased level of angiotensin II. And that's a wrap. Let's see what you learned about vasopressin in this physiology review. First, what are the two primary effects of vasopressin? Vasopressin's first main action is to increase blood pressure through vasoconstriction and expanding fluid volume. Its second and more unique action is to decrease the seromosmolarity through free water reabsorption, which simultaneously increases the urine osmolarity. Second, where is vasopressin synthesized and released? Vasopressin is synthesized in the hypothalamus, transported down the axons of the pituitary infundibulum, and stored in the posterior pituitary gland, where it's released given the appropriate stimulus. Third, what is the mechanism by which vasopressin, or ADH, causes free water reabsorption in the nephron? Vasopressin increases the permeability of the collecting tubule to water by causing the insertion of aquaporins into the principal cells. It also increases the osmotic drive to reabsorb water into the interstitium by increasing the reabsorption of urea. The net effect of ADH on the kidney is the excretion of small amounts of highly concentrated urine, which both dilutes and expands the blood volume. 
Finally, what are the three primary stimuli for vasopressin secretion by the posterior pituitary? An increase in ceramosmolarity, a decrease in blood volume, and increased levels of angiotensin II. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 50-year-old female with a history of malignant melanoma presents to the ER with confusion and is found to be hyponatremic with a newly discovered metastatic lesion in her brain. How will you explain the patient's findings in terms of the dysregulation of vasopressin? Since sodium is the most prevalent serum osmol, decreased serum sodium is likely a reflection of overly dilute serum, and follow-up labs confirm that the patient's serum osmolarity is very low, while her urine osmolarity is very high. You explain to the patient and the family member in the room that she likely has too much vasopressin in her bloodstream, a condition known as SIADH. Basically, you tell her, vasopressin is the hormone that keeps you alive when you're dehydrated. The vasopressin overload is tricking your body into thinking it needs to conserve all the water it can, which dilutes your blood. One of the most common reasons for vasopressin to be abnormal is a mass, trauma, or infection in the brain. And unfortunately, it looks like she does have a new mass in her brain. You pause for the news to sink in, and explain that while the study you ordered isn't definitive, it probably means the cancer has spread to the brain. For now, though, you tell her, the most important thing is to manage your sodium levels. Water likes to travel wherever it's saltiest, and since the level of sodium in your blood is too low, it can move into the brain tissue instead, making your brain swell to dangerous levels. You explain that you're not sure whether the confusion is being caused by the mass or by the sodium, but you reassure her, I'll fix what I can, and make sure you have the right people looking after you to look into the brain mass. And that's our show! If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 